Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. Thank you for joining me. I am so glad that you're listening in today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people, concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. Now let's turn our attention to this week's message. C.S. Lewis, from his book Mere Christianity, writes, Fine feelings, new insights, greater interest in religion mean nothing unless they make our actual behavior better. When we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Wow, that quote gives us a whole lot to think about, and it ties in well to our series on faith. Last week, we began talking about faith starting, we started with the classic passage from Hebrews 11.1, 1, which reads, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And faith may begin by believing in what we cannot see, but certainly everyone in the world can see the people of faith. And it's a terrible thing when our actions do not match our faith. And so this week, I want to share a passage with you from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And this passage makes it clear that faith must be connected to action. It must be connected to our deeds, what we do, our works. Faith needs action. Faith and deeds, I know they can be a touchy topic. And as Christians, we believe that it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ that we can receive salvation. Most people believe that blessing, on the other hand, must be earned or fought for or bargained for. You and I are constantly measured by and measuring others by our accomplishments, by our education, abilities, productiveness, all the good we've done, all the mistakes we've made, all the bad we've indulged in, and it's evaluated by those around us to measure our value. It's tempting to use those same standards to measure our value to God. Many of us spend tremendous energy trying to gain God's approval, but the reality is that each one of us, each one of you, is already valued deeply and infinitely by God. Deeds, works, actions do not increase our value or move us closer to heaven. But for faith to be healthy, for to be visible and transformative, it needs each of us to live with works that bring our faith to life and put it on display. And in the letter of James, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we are told in God's word how it is essential to pair faith and deeds. Let's read the text. Again, it's James chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. It's a short text, but it tells us that faith and deeds must go together. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what makes faith visible? Not what we have faith in, but what makes our faith a thing that we can see? How do you look at another person's faith? What do you look for? How can you see it? How do you know that your faith is good? And how do you know that your faith is healthy? In other words, how do you measure something you can't see? And James says, it is seen in your flesh. Faith is seen in your flesh 
and blood actions. How you live proclaims your faith. Now, maybe you're hearing that and going, oh, maybe the way you live proclaims your lack of faith. But I want you to ask the question of yourself today. What do your actions say about what you believe, your faith, your faith in God? Now, again, I want to reaffirm that faith alone unlocks salvation. Faith is belief and trust in the authority of Jesus and in his sacrifice upon the cross for our redemption. And for the one who believes in all of that, they gain eternal life. That's the work of faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 affirm this. They say, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So, faith is what allows us to receive Jesus and his salvation. So, what about deeds or actions? What role do they play? And deeds are important to faith, works. Now, the Greek work for deeds or for works, works, deeds, actions, it's going to be a little interchangeable in this message, but the Greek word is the word ergon. And this is a word found all over the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, but it's all over the New Testament. And it's here in James chapter 2. I want to start with Aragon's secondary meaning, uh, which you, know, you might find it funny for me to start with its secondary meaning, but the secondary meaning refers to duties, that is, which is expected of a servant or worker. It's not about earning approval or doing uh just simply a good job, but simply doing what is expected. In the culture of Jesus's day, there was a high emphasis on honor and shame. And a servant, a slave, or a worker, they had to conduct themselves in a way that brought honor to their master or their Lord. To fail to do so would bring shame on them and bring shame on their master. Right action, or ergon, was a way of honoring those who were indebted to you. This is what we see in Jesus' parable of the talents, a famous parable many of you may have heard before, where a master leaves and leaves his servants in charge of part of his wealth. And we read verses in it, like Matthew 25, 21, that says, His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. That's Ergon, meaning a servant doing their duty. The servant did what was expected. So, duty is a part of the meaning of Ergon, but its primary definition is this. Deeds, Ergon, is not so much how we learn our value or just simply the duty we do, as much as something that displays itself with activity, meaning Ergon refers to practical proof or visible evidence The outward actions, that is to say, deeds, ergon, are faith on display. That is the role that deeds play in our faith. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, Faith and good works are both necessary, but one is the root and the other the fruit. Deeds are the evidence of our faith. Deeds are a reflection of our faith at work in our lives. Throughout the Bible, we're told that God will measure our deeds. He's looking at the fruit of our faith. So, we read verses like Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 20 that read like this, Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. They're being measured by their deeds. Acts 26, verse 20 says this, 
This is uh, Paul speaking. He says, first to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to all the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So, their repentance was to be demonstrated so that people could see it, could be judged, or at least observed. Again, our actions do not earn our salvation, but faith It's faith that unlocks salvation. Our actions are the fruit of our faith. Solid faith will produce deeds that please God. So, in addition to being the fruit of faith, godly actions also maintain your faith and refine your faith. That's something we need to dig into a little bit here. We start with faith. That gets us salvation. And then deeds should follow. And soon those deeds strengthen your faith. This is not so much a circle of faith feeding deeds and deeds feeding faith, but a spiral that leads us upward closer to God. Faith produces deeds. Deeds grow bigger faith. Bigger faith grows stronger deeds in which turn into deeper faith yet again. Each time you let your faith bloom into action, your faith brims with life and it grows. So, we need to ask ourselves the question, what happens if you fail to produce action? to produce deeds or works from your faith. When that happens, when we fail, faith dies. That's why our text today, James tells us that faith by itself is dead. In fact, a little later, James says in chapter 2, verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith needs tending. Otherwise, it will become stunted and weak. Now, in the Walker home, I'm just going to admit, and you've probably heard me say this before, we are terrible gardeners. We have black thumbs. Every year, we try to grow flowers. We try to grow tomatoes and some things like that. And we always start well. We begin with diligence, but then we forget to water one day. We decide one day that the weeds can wait a little while longer, and then we have a busy weekend, and before you know it, the tomato plants are brittle vines crying out for water, just struggling for life, and the flowers are wilted in defeat. Honestly, whenever someone has a planting suggestion for uh, our household, for our gardens, my first question is, is how hardy is the plant, and can it survive the neglect that I'm about to give it? Faith needs tending. So many of us start well, but then one day we forget. We put off the work till a little later and life gets a little busier. And then before we know it, faith has become brittle. It's wilted. Does your faith need tending? So how do we know we're doing deeds well? Because not just any deed will do. How do you know or how do we know our deeds are the kind that are the fruit of faith and not just trying to accomplish ourselves and please ourselves, but we're actually trying to honor God. We need a standard, a standard that we don't set, but that God sets. We can't set the standard ourselves. If we set it ourselves, it won't be a very good standard. There's a joke of a factory manager that found that production was being hampered by the tardiness of his workers uh, returning from the lunch hour. When the whistle blew, few of them were at their machines, and so he posted a sign with a suggestion box by it, offering a cash award for the best answer to the question, what should we do to ensure that every worker will be inside the factory when the whistle blows? Many suggestions were submitted, but the one that was selected uh, to solve the problem um, 
<laughs> and it was a joke. Uh, the manager uh, was a person of a sense of humor, and he liked this one the best, and he knew he couldn't use it, but the suggestion was this. If we want to get everybody in before the whistle blows, let the last person in blow the whistle. That's not how you set a standard. We can't set the standard. We have to let God set the standard. We're not capable of setting true standards for goodness, for love, and godliness, but God has. And we must measure who we are and our actions by His standard, what we read in His Word. So you need to ask, is the fruit of your life pleasing to God or just yourself? I'd like to suggest four areas today that can help us understand God's expectation for how we bring our faith to life with deeds. These are four qualities or characteristics that are found through the Bible that God expects of us. And I, I know that if you begin to put these different qualities into your actions, your deeds will be godly and they will be pleasing to God. The first quality is a simple one and a hard one, obedience. There are not many more words that are uh, as unpopular as the word obey. As Christians, our actions should come from an earnest effort to obey what God has asked of us. Jesus even says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commands. I mean, that's a pretty short verse. If you love me, keep my commands. <sighs> Hard to do, isn't it? Harder, harder than it should be. Peter Marshall, the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, offered this challenge concerning obedience, and he says this, I wonder what would happen if we all agreed to read one of the Gospels until we came to a place that told us to do something, and then we went out to do it. And only after we had done it, we began reading again. There are aspects of the Gospel that are puzzling and difficult to understand, but our problems are not centered around the things we do not understand, but rather the things we do understand, the things we could not possibly misunderstand. Our problem is not so much that we do not know what we should do. We know perfectly well, but we don't want to do it. Obedience is tough because deep down we want our way. We want to be in charge. We want to affirm ourselves. But real obedience is transformative. Eugene Peterson writes these words, When we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. I got one last quote for you, connecting faith and deeds, or let's say obedience right now. Martin Luther says, There is no justification without sanctification. There's no forgiveness without renewal of life. No real faith from which fruits of a new obedience do not grow. So, faith will have to have obedience. A second characteristic that we need to have in our deeds, our works, is Christ-likeness. We need to be Christ-like. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says this, Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Meaning, whoever claims to live in God must live as Jesus did. Huh. Where obedience is disliked, most people like the idea of being Christ-like. But I would challenge you that part of being Christ-like, the part that appeals to you, to our culture, see, 
our culture likes the picture of Jesus who eats with sinners, who calls out the religious leaders. We like the love of Jesus. We like the compassion of Jesus. We like the Jesus that helps those in need. And we need to do these things, but there is more to being Christ-like. Again, I'd quote Martin Luther, the great reformer, and he says this, As our Heavenly Father has in Christ freely come to our aid, we also ought freely to help our neighbor, and each one should become a Christ to the other. So, we are to become Christ-like. But we often like easy parts of Christ-likeness, the warm feeling of Christ-likeness. Philippians 2.5 says this, In your relationships to, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5, after that verse, it continues on. And it goes on to describe Jesus, his mindset, his attitude, his humbling himself, his humility, his lowering of himself from his rightful seat in heaven to a cross, dying a criminal's death. And he's innocent. But he's humiliated on that cross to redeem all of humankind. Christ-likeness is sacrificial. Christ-likeness is a rescue effort. Our actions should draw others to God. A third quality, characteristic, that can shape our deeds so that they're godly is holiness. Holiness at its core is being set apart, designated for a special purpose. The Christian who is to be, it is the Christian who is to be set apart for God. We are often guilty of trying to add a little of God into our life instead of saying, I am set apart for God. Which do you do? Can you say you are set apart for God? Or have you just been adding him in to what you already are? We are to take holiness very seriously. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says this, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 say this, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Jerry Bridges writes these words, Many Christians have what we might call a cultural holiness. They adapt to the character and behavior pattern of Christians around them. But God has not called us to be like those around us. He has called us to be like Himself. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the character of God. And then one more quote from Brett McCracken. It's far more acceptable to say in this world today, My life is so messed up than it is to say, I'm striving to be holy. For many, Christianity's Christianity's seeming obsession with holiness is one of the most distasteful qualities it has. Why is holiness so reviled? One reason is simply that the pursuit of holiness also involves the acknowledgement of sin and the necessity of repentance. A fourth quality for Uh, that we need to have to shape our deeds is that of love. I saved this fourth quality to last, this love to last, because it's the one we seem to run to first. Our culture loves the idea of love, (laughs) and we're very flippant about it. Love finds its real shape in obedience and Christ-likeness and holiness. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Wow, faith expressing itself through love. 
and works that display faith will be full of God's love. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 say this, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. So, there's a lot of strength. There's a lot of courageousness. There's a lot about standing in your faith. And then there is that phrase, do everything in love. Our works, our deeds as Christians, they need to be shaped by love. I want to share uh, a final story, and then we'll start to come to a close here. Eh, not quite a final story, but um, it, it's a passage that's often referred to um, in order to describe the sacrificial kind of cultural quality of the early church. And it comes to us uh, from one of Christianity's, early Christianity's strongest critics. Uh, it's an, a Roman emperor who is later known as Julian the Apostate. He's the last non-Christian emperor of Rome, and he served from the year 361 to the year 363. And he begrudgingly acknowledged that the Christians, or the Galileans as he referred to them, took care of the needy far more than the pagan counterparts. And this led to a lot of converts to Christianity. And this concerned the emperor because he thought it threatened uh, his attempt to restore the supremacy of the Roman pantheon of gods. Uh, Most importantly, I'm going to read you a passage here where Julian is describing just how powerful the church can be when it models the sacrificial love of Christ to its neighbors. However, Julian, of course, isn't praising the church. He's against it. But here's what he writes. These impious Galileans, Christians, not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them with their agape, which is the word for love. They attract them as children attract with cakes. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. Wow. But even the Roman emperor trying to destroy the church, trying to uh, reaffirm and restore his Roman gods, saw, though he didn't see it positively, he saw that the Christians' deeds, our actions, when they are obedient, when they are Christ-like, when they are holy, when they are loving, they catch like wildfire among the world. Everyone sees it, and they see a bit of God, they see a bit of Christ, and they hunger for it. How is your faith on display? Faith and deeds need to be put together. Here's a couple of words that theologians like to throw around. The first one you may have heard before, orthodoxy. And this term means right belief, which is critically important. We need to have right belief. The stronger your foundation of orthodoxy, the better you'll be able to face the challenges and disappointments of life. The second word is a little less popular, but equally important. It's orthopraxy. And orthopraxy means right practice. Correct actions and living as you navigate the challenges of life. The healthy Christian life is built on both of these, faith and deeds, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. One cannot survive without the other. Take one out and we shrivel up. 
there's a Spanish philosopher who tells about a Roman aqueduct that was at the area of Segovia in his native Spain, and uh, it was built around the year 109 AD. And for 1,800 years, it carried cool water from the mountains to the hot and thirsty city. Nearly 60 generations of people drank from its flow. Then came another generation, a recent one, who said, This aqueduct is so great a marvel that it ought to be preserved for our children as a museum piece. We shall relieve it of its centuries-long labor. And they did. They laid modern iron pipes, and they gave the ancient bricks and mortar a reverent rest. And the aqueduct began to fall apart. The sun beating down on the now dry mortar caused it to crumble. The bricks and stones sagged and threatened to fall. What ages of service could not destroy, idleness disintegrated. Resolve to put your faith on display in all of your deeds so that you'll grow strong in your walk with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have put our faith in you, and you have answered by giving us grace through your Son, Jesus. Help us to put that faith on display with changed lives that are full of works that show your glory. Help us to be obedient to your will. Conform us to Christ. Convict us to be a holy people set apart for you, and empower us to love others redemptively. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.